Well, good morning. It's great to see you this spring break week, and uh, we want to say a special welcome to those of you joining us online from whatever exotic vacation spot you've chosen this year. Uh, we miss you. You know, I was told, or, well, I've heard this week, the, uh, the staff that's going to be remaining this week has been referred to as the remnant very many times, and so I was told we'd have a remnant, but this is a pretty good-looking remnant, I must say, this morning. So you don't get a spring break either, huh? All right. <laughs> it is an honor this morning to get another opportunity like this. Uh, just a few months ago, I got to lead worship on a Sunday morning. No, not last week. That was a different bald-headed, bearded guy. We have a couple of those in the production department. But So I got to lead worship, and now I get to preach. I see it as such a blessing to get to do some of these things I've done in ministry for years, while I now lead the uh, amazing production team here at Sherwood Oaks day to day. And so I want to say, hey, guys. I miss you this morning. Thanks for making me look good. So Tom asked me a few months ago if I'd be interested in preaching, and I said, of course. He said, great, uh, it's spring break. I said, okay, okay, I can do this. He said, all right, well, your theme is Satan. <laughs> so in our behind-the-scenes series, I, I knew that was going to be, I said, okay, okay, I can, it, I knew I didn't pull an easy topic here, guys. The enemy we cannot see, Satan. Satan. Those guys are good, aren't they? All right. So it didn't take long for me to see what was going on here because after I had this intro planned, I found out there was even more stacked against me. And I think Tom said it best last week. Do that. And here's the bad news. Here's the bad news. Worst Sunday is next Sunday. It's when the time changes and you spring forward. You lose an hour of sleep this coming Sunday. You'll gain it back when you get here. I understand that. But you'll lose an hour of sleep so be sure and set your clock Saturday night before so you don't miss a thing. So I got the worst Sunday, and I'm pretty sure he just gave you all permission to sleep during the sermon. So I have quite an uphill battle, but I got this. I'm excited. I think there is a ton for us to learn about who Satan really is. So let me just share. George Barna research revealed that three out of five Americans do not believe in the existence of a literal devil, that Satan is merely a symbol of evil. And surprisingly, 50% of Christians don't even believe in a literal devil. Satan is really under the radar, and I know I have my work cut out for me this morning. But if you start with Genesis, I've always had a question about Satan in the Garden of Eden that I would like to ask God about someday. And maybe you keep a list also of questions I'd like to ask God someday. I, this is really on my list of them. It came up in our life group last week even, and the guy in my life group who got this question had this great theological question that was something Mark Middleberg should answer with one life. Um, but my question is in Genesis 3, uh, refers to that. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good of evil. Now make a note while we're here that Satan is trying to get Eve to not follow God, the Creator. But my question is about God's response to the serpent in verse 14, all right? The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. 
on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So in verse, tra- in verse 14, most translations say, on your belly you shall go. What does that mean? What did they do before they were cursed? Did they not crawl on their bellies? Did they have legs? Or did they fly? Because I'm just going to say, if we're trying to picture Satan as the scariest thing we can, I think a flying snake might be that. (laughs) Now, I've had a biochemist and an evolutionary uh, scientist come tell me this morning that their snakes might have had legs. There's some proof. And so I just want to make sure to throw that out there. They probably didn't have wings. I lost. Um, But as we move on, like, I'm not here to scare you this morning. But I do think that we are too unaware of this enemy that we cannot see and what his goal is. If we saw him for who he really was and what he wants to do to us, I think we would be pretty scared. When I think about what the world believes about this enemy that we cannot see, there's a quote I wanted to use, and Tom used it in the intro a few weeks ago. And I have permission to use it again, so let me quote Tom Ellsworth quoting C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So in other words, to not believe in Satan and his forces is just as dangerous as having an unhealthy obsession with them. So half of all Americans don't believe in Satan. Then we have many people who experiment with the devil or invoke his names in ways that are more detrimental to their lives than they realize. Now, you may have seen in Michigan a few years ago, the Satanic Temple unveiled a statue of Satan with two children on either side of him that they planned to display at the Oklahoma State Capitol next to a display of the Ten Commandments. The thing is, the Satanic Temple doesn't even believe in Satan. Articles quote it saying that the temple uses the literary Satan as a metaphor to promote pragmatic skepticism, rational reciprocity, personal autonomy, and curiosity. Satan is thus used as a symbol representing, representing the eternal rebel against arbitrary authority and social norms. Now, I used to like metal music. Anybody else? Have you metal? Anybody? All right. I got to tell you, 8 o'clock had people raise their hands, possibly more than we just had here. <laughs> now I'm more into like Christian noisecore, you know, uh, alternative metal. Anyway, I know that many bands that, that we've seen and that we think of as satanic just use that as symbolism. And those references uh, to rebel against authority and social norms. I know in junior high, I used the anarchy A symbol in my signature for about a week or so. Until a teacher told me, if you do this again, I will give you an F on every paper you submit with it. That was my eighth grade algebra teacher, Miss Werner. I still remember it. And I'll never forget. I wasn't really an anarchist. I mean, what eighth grader understands what anarchy is and what an anarchist really believes? All I knew is that I'd seen it on shirts and cassettes. Yes, cassettes of some of the bands that I liked, and I knew that it meant rebellion, which is what I wanted to be in junior high. And I was just trying to be cool, which I failed miserably at when your teacher calls you out like that. But I do want you to know, as a side note here, that teachers don't ever underestimate the impact that you have on students and what you can speak into their lives. And students recognize that teachers and adults sometimes uh, know what they're talking about and are just trying to help guide you in ways and make you think about what you're really doing with your life. And mom, I hope you didn't just learn another thing about my childhood through a sermon illustration. (laughs) My wife is laughing because you wouldn't believe some of the things my mom still jokes about. All right. So the Satanic Temple views Satan not as an evil figure, but as one who dared to question authority. And that's what they're trying to do. The Satanic Temple is really an advocate for the separation of church and state. And they've chosen quite an interesting way to take up that battle, haven't they? 
So here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. If we look at another satanic group, the Church of Satan, I guess they have denominations too. The Church of Satan is different and was founded in the 1960s, and they don't have a belief, espouse a belief in Satan as an entity who literally exists either. And their founder, who wrote the Satanic Bible, did not encourage the worship of Satan as a deity. Isn't that scary, though? Using Satan for political, musical, and religious rebellion just to try to be cool. Do you know what the Church of Satan actually does is that they worship self. They're about putting yourself first. They're about getting revenge on those who wrong you, not forgiving and respecting others. I watched a documentary on the History Channel or something one time. I don't know why I stopped on it. My dad stops on war documentaries, records them, watches them like crazy. I'm usually with the cheesy 80s or 90s movies or wrestling. I'm a sucker for wrestling. But I stopped on this documentary about the Church of Satan one time, and it was interesting. And that's where I learned that the Church of Satan doesn't actually believe in Satan. What they do promote is revenge and self-promotion. They explain that in their services, one of their rituals is to bring in a picture or representation of someone who's wronged them and burn it or destroy it. And they said that the animal sacrifices and other bizarre rituals that we associate with the Church of Satan are really just there to mess with people. But that documentary prepared me to be excited to preach on this today. So I thank God for that odd channel stop I had. But the great deceiver, he's got a church that doesn't even believe in him. Now that's an enemy that we cannot see. So the Satanic Bible has statements of belief. And no, I've not been reading it, but I want to share a couple of them. Satan, they believe that Satan represents kindness to those who deserve it instead of love wasted on ingrates. They believe Satan represents vengeance instead of turning the other cheek. And doesn't that just relate perfectly to what God wants us to do, though? Because I had a friend call me years ago, and she said, I'm tired of being nice to people. She said, I'm tired of not getting what I want. She said, people are stupid. I'm, and she said she was done um, putting others first. And she said, I'm not turning the cheek anymore, other cheek anymore. And I got it. I, she was frustrated with, with the way she'd been treated and with what was going on in the world. And I told her, you know, that's exactly where Satan wants you. And what I learned is you should not ever tell that to someone. <laughs> Another statement of belief the last one in the, in the uh, Satanic Bible, this, they believe that Satan has been the best friend the church has ever had and has kept it in business all these years. For so many not believing in Satan, he sure has quite an effect on our world. And there are many things that we can't see, but the effects lead us to accept their existence. Wind, gravity, even things we can't see with our naked eye like germs and atoms. But we see th their effects in the sickness and structure in their world. So if we apply that same argument to Satan, maybe there's something to this enemy that we cannot see. This enemy that his own church doesn't believe in just might be real. And I know when we look at what the Bible says, we see that there is the Satan, that there is the chief demon. And there's a lot of names in the Bible. And I really think it's neat how much you can learn about a character just from what their name means in the Bible. I think my favorite name in the Bible is Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. It is the longest name in the Bible. It is the youngest son of Isaiah. And I remember from Bible college that this name meant swift is the booty or plunder. And that it was a prophetic name referencing the coming attack on Damascus and Syria by the Assyrian army. Thank you. <laughs> I've been very specific about my daughter's middle names too. Their name, middle names are hope, grace, and joy. And I'd love to tell you the long story behind each of them, but that's another time. But they are chock full of meaning of the times we were going through my cancer battle each time they were born. My oldest daughter we named on the morning... Uh, of my first chemotherapy treatment. We had to stop on the way there and have an ultrasound to find out we were having a girl. 
So we sat at our, the first treatment and went through baby names, and I just decided right away I want her middle name to be Hope. And all I can say is I'm glad I got to help with the middle names because after I named my cats Cujo and Fido, we had a bird named Nemo, a fish named Bruce Willis, and a scruffy dog named Brillo. I'm just impressed my wife let me get in any part of the names. <laughs> but in the Greek and Hebrew, the word Satan isn't a proper noun. It's not a name at all. It's, it's an adjective or a common noun based on a verb that means to oppose or to obstruct. So Satan simply means adversary or enemy. It's someone who stands in opposition against you. The demonic forces and demon-possessed definitely fall into this category. However, I see that throughout the story of Scripture, he comes up again and again, the Satan, interjecting himself into the work of God. So there's devils, the slanderers and accusers, and there's the devil. So there's Satan, the word for adversary or enemy, and there's the Satan, the adversary, the demon, or the enemy. So there's an enemy that we cannot see that has a leader, a chief demon called the Satan, and that becomes his name. So this enemy that we cannot see, Satan, his personality, his work is shown over and over in the Bible. And I'll admit I'm not going to get too much into demons and demon possession, but based on their names in scripture and their work, they are fallen angels whose spirit and function is that of the devil, the Satan. So they follow their chief, they follow their leader. Now, I think the best definition of the name Satan would be obstructor. And I want to tell you how much that name tells me about Satan. That when we look in the Bible, what it says about the enemy that we cannot see, about Satan, about his forces, we see that his goal is to stop us from fulfilling God's purposes in our lives. So that's the scary thing is God wants that goal for our life. He wants to obstruct the will of God in our life. And you know what God's desire is for your life? This plan, the commandments that he gives us. Jesus says it boils down to two things, just two things. In Matthew 22, an expert in the law tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself. So Satan's super scary goal is just to distract us from those two things, just those two things, and he wins. That's his goal. So there it is to know this, that the enemy's goal is to do anything he can to prevent you from loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to prevent you from loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what the church of Satan wants, isn't it? And that's exactly what Satan wants. It's what he does. So the enemy that we cannot see is at work throughout the Bible trying to obstruct the work of God. I pointed out in Genesis 3 at creation that he's there accusing God of lying to Eve. He's slandering, he's obstructing. I mean, just about anything else that's a part of that name, he does it all right there in the very beginning in his first appearance. But in the book of Job, he's there trying to convince an upright man to curse God. Let me read you some, if you want to read along with us, in Job 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Now there's a footnote here next to the name Satan, and it makes sure you know that, the Satan, the, that Satan means adversary. So they're defining the word, but what they want you to know is it's a name here. This is the Satan, the Ha-Satan for you Hebrew fans. But back to the story. The footnotes just get me like shiny objects and squirrels. Um, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. 
He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Now, shortcut the next couple of verses, his ox, his donkeys, his sheep, his servants, his children all die and his house is gone. So after that, Job gets up and he tears his robe and shaves his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Well, he's not done yet. Job 2, the servant, uh, it says that the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replies. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to his face. The Lord says to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. You know, I thought about trying to shorten this and cut out that last verse there, but um, if that pottery thing doesn't make you cringe and doesn't tell you what's really going on here, I don't know what does. But back to the story, his wife says to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So we see here, this accuser named is earned. He's a slanderer. He's accusing God. He's obstructing. He's definitely an adversary, wouldn't you say? He's trying to obstruct the will of God. He tries to obstruct Jesus' mission, even. Right after Jesus' baptism, and I mean right after Jesus' baptism, right when Jesus begins his mission and ministry, Satan's trying to stop it. After Jesus was baptized in Luke 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan River, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was very hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus is using scripture to battle Satan here. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. He said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, Jesus quoting scripture. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to test. When the devil had finished up with all this tempting, he left him till an opportune time. I think I would call that obstruction, wouldn't you? A troubling place, maybe the most troubling place where the name Satan comes up is when Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. I mean, he calls Peter his adversary. But when we think about what was Peter trying to do, in Matthew 16, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. 
Well, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Peter was trying to obstruct God's plans. We see good intentions, good heart, but wrong actions. I see that in my own life. I've been asked a few times, how did you end up here at Sherwood Oaks? I don't know if that means I'm unqualified or they're just crazy, but they, why, what brings you here? And I've understood it just means how did you get here to the staff? Who do you know? How did this happen that you've come here to Indiana? And uh, I got a text from my friend John Muffler that I went to college with, and he said, hey, Matt, we have this great opportunity at our church I think you could be the right man for. I responded back, thank you for thinking of me. I'm honored. I'm not leaving St. Louis. He replied back later with a picture of him and Roger Clark and Tim Thompson. He said, hey, we're ready to come out today and have lunch with you. And I went and called him and said, I don't want you, you know, don't do this. Driving out here is just going to be a waste of your time because I'm not leaving St. Louis, so don't even do it. And he said, I'd rather us come out there and waste our time than not have the conversation at all. So I said, all right, just can I call your guy? Who is it? Give me the number. I'll call him and we'll take care of this. So I called, talked to Tim Thompson. That Tim Thompson charm uh, just wooed me. And um, I was, I was, no, our philosophies of ministry, what we want to do, what we're trying to accomplish, just made so much sense that throughout the whole process, I kept going, yeah, but it's not in St. Louis. Yeah, it does sound perfect. If only it was in St. Louis. And at some point, I had to let that go. I didn't have the concerns of God. I had my concerns. I had my human concerns in mind. And so a lot of things can obstruct us from the plans of God. And this enemy that we cannot see, Satan, he uses just about everything he can. I had a friend in Bible college that was flunking out and having problems, and he got called before the discipline committee. And yes, we have those in Bible college. <laughs> His discipline handed down was that he wasn't allowed to play video games the rest of the year. His RA was to monitor him, who was across the hall, keep an eye on him, and if he was caught playing video games, he'd be done there at the school. But my question would be, what things does Satan use to obstruct God's plans in your life? Do you need to tell your video game system, get behind me, Satan? Do you need to tell your TV, get behind me, Satan? Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's a neighbor. No, don't don't tell your neighbor, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) But maybe it is a relationship. Jesus didn't cut Peter off, but he did acknowledge it and share what the plan for his life was. So what is preventing you? What is preventing us from living a life trusting God with every decision? How do we make Jesus Lord of everything? Driving out demons wasn't a footnote in Jesus' ministry. Demon possession can be a stronghold, an addiction, and it can be idolatry. Idolatry is simply something taking the place of God in our lives. Richard Foster said, Our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Sometimes we get caught up living our lives for ourselves, We want to make the decisions and do things our way. And we can get full of pride, and Satan uses that. So whether we like it or not, it's not really God or me on the throne of my life. It's God or Satan on the throne of our life. The C.S. Lewis quote that I started with, or Tom quote, um, has a second part. It says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devils, they themselves, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist 
or a magician with the same delight. So whether you worship Satan or you worship stuff, the devils celebrate it just the same. Satan was full of pride, and that's how he fell from heaven. Jesus speaks in Luke 10, 18 about seeing Satan as he fell from heaven. And there are two accounts of him being cast down in Scripture, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Isaiah says he was cast down from heaven because you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But, I like adding this, you are brought down to the realm of the dead and to the depths of the pit. In Ezekiel 28, he's used as an example to another king of the fate that they're going to experience. But it says, Satan, it said, your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made fire come out from you, and it consumed you, and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. I think Ezekiel can be used as a warning to us, too. But this is where the curiosity with the supernatural comes in, the fascination with Satan. Whether we know it or not, we all fall into his snares. Satan is not simply the personification of evil influences in the heart, as we've explored so many people believing. His personality and his existence are emphasized in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially in the New Testament, where if the Old Testament language was intended to be figurative, as some would have you believe, the New Testament, I think, would have made that pretty evident to us. But here's what I see and have found, is that in the New Testament, his existence and his work is only reinforced. In Revelation, it speaks tons of him. We get so many details in the battle. And I see nowhere in the New Testament or in the early church history does anyone dispute the account of Satan. Nowhere in Scripture is he refuted. Other things are fulfilled in the New Testament. Seafood and pork are no longer unclean, but Satan isn't explained as a myth or his existence excused. If anything, Satan is spoke of more and more, and he's proven in the demon possession that Jesus encounters so many times. So the Bible teaching as a whole seems to mean that there is a destructive power of evil at work in the world attempting to obstruct the purposes of God, and especially his purposes for mankind, but that there is a limit to his power. There is something we can do, and there is a weapon against the devil. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So do you know what Satan wants you to do? Satan wants you to not confess. He wants you to not become a strong community, and he wants you to not be a person of prayer. Jesus sent out his disciples, and they were able to cast out demons. They were able to overcome this adversary. And prayer was their ammunition. Prayer is our ammunition. Satan tries to convince us that God isn't powerful enough or that we can handle it on our own. He tries to build up pride that we don't need to pray, that that there's no power there, that we can handle it. But we need the Lord and we need each other. And we need to lift each other up. Confessing can sound intimidating and almost degrading. But maybe you've heard this next quote. Next time Satan tries to remind you of your past, remind him of his future. And I think John Knox, a preacher of the Reformer, uh, understood this when he said, if Satan fume and roar against you, whether it be against your bodies by persecution or inwardly in your consciences by a spiritual battle, do not be discouraged as though you were less acceptable in God's presence or that Satan might at any time prevail against you. I have good hope and my prayer will be likewise that you may be so strengthened that the world and Satan himself may understand and perceive that God is fighting your battle. God is fighting the battle for you. 
God is fighting for you. Amen. I love that double meaning. God is fighting for you and he is fighting for you. He wants, he's fighting the battle so that you don't have to, but he's fighting because he wants you. He wants a relationship. Jesus came to earth to defeat Satan. He did that through the cross. The battle is already won. We know the end. We know Satan's future. Revelation 20.10 says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. No matter where you are in life, you can make Jesus Lord and know that this enemy who seeks to destroy your life will be defeated. Jesus, had con- Jesus has conquered death so that you can have life and life to the fullest, that we can have hope. Even if you've been a believer for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, I'm not going to keep counting. Even if you've been a, le- been a believer for years, we still need to keep Jesus on the throne and we fight every day. Satan has so many methods as we've just discussed. We know he is real and he is powerful, but our God is stronger and he has won. Remember the commandments, the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I love how this church does both, and I'm proud to be here. I'm proud to be a part of this church, proud to be in Indiana. And I pray that you remain strong in the Lord, that you can join this community where we can grow together every day closer and closer to God. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.